had an opportunity to uh, go to dinner this last week and had a very enjoyable time. Person that I uh, was uh, that I shared dinner with had been around Hollywood for many years. Uh, a lot of different people in Hollywood uh, they knew had had their picture taken with. Some cases had eaten with. Some cases had uh, just been around or worked with. Uh, Lucille Ball, um, Dick Van Dyke, Bob Newhart, uh, Marlon or Marla uh, Thomas, the uh, one that's married to uh, the guy that winds the blues on TV all the time. What's his name? Uh, Phil Donahue. Uh, they also, uh, you know, met uh, uh, Steve Martin, Martin Short, Catherine Hepburn, uh, Henry Fonda, uh, Chevy Chase, Jack Nicholson, uh, Michael Douglas, Sylvester Stallone, George C. Scott, uh, Jody Foster. Roy Schneider, the guy that was in uh, Jaws, uh, the cast of Karate Kid, you know, just a lot of different people. And it was in, enjoyable to talk because when you find out someone knows people like that or, or has met them or been around them, you, you have a lot of questions. You know, well, what's this person like? You know, one of my questions was, uh, out of all of Hollywood, who was the nicest to work for? Uh, you know, they said, well, probably Lucille Ball. Um, uh, maybe, uh, well, who was the worst to work for? And they didn't like Sylvester Stallone. Um, just different things, you know, say, well, who was, who was the smartest? Uh, Desi Arnaz, Lucille Ball's husband. They said he was probably about the smartest man that they'd, they'd worked for uh, and dealt with. So it was interesting. You had a lot of questions because here you are eating dinner and you're sort of like, well, tell me a little bit about um, that, uh, that person. And so... Um, you know, pr pretty soon, the, the more that, um, you know, they're, they begin to tell you a little bit about these people and you begin to sort of form an image and so forth. Well, also last week I had another dinner with an individual who had started out really a, a poor boy, didn't really have a whole lot, and later on made, uh, you know, kind of made his fame in, in uh, uh, the housing industry and construction and uh, became... Um, later, quite quite wealthy, quite a rags to riches story, gone from basically nothing to uh, becoming, you know, very uh, very wealthy. Had uh, some experience of being a soldier. In fact, he was a war hero, uh, decorated. Was a prisoner of war. Uh, helped others escape and was able to uh, uh, work their escape out. Uh, the organization that he now heads, uh, everybody in the organization loves uh, this individual. Uh, he's never forgotten where he came from, never forgotten who the people are that uh, are around him. Uh, he loves children. He's uh, very kind but can be very, very strict at the same time, very much loves justice, and um, never says anything bad about anybody, very, very generous. It was interesting to be able to have dinner with that person because all of you in this room had dinner with the same person, and that was the Passover with Jesus Christ. Uh, some of you had more intimate dinner than others. Uh, those of you who have not been uh, purchased and redeemed by Jesus Christ yet had a dinner with him at night to be observed where you had a feast where he invited you to the meal, and uh, the reason you were invited was... Uh, basically because of, of your parents, a calling. One of them has been called, and therefore 
the invite went out because you're holy and set apart. So you were able to come and have a, a night to be observed, sort of the Passover meal, if you will, and, and share it with, with Christ, share it with God. And then those of you who have gone on and formed a deeper relationship and have been redeemed by Christ, have gone through the necessary steps, then you not only got to, a chance to memorialize and look back on that Passover meal, but you actually got to go to the next step, which you got to go into an inner chamber and have bread and wine uh, on his table with just him. And uh, that was real special as well as we broke bread with Christ and we looked, uh, we pictured his death and the fact that he redeemed us. And of course, uh, there's so much to come from that. In the past, we've thought, and I think there's been a, a real disservice to the, uh, to the brethren in the way that we viewed the Passover in the past. Uh, for so many years, we were taught, you have to prepare for the Passover. You have to get ready for the Passover. And so we heard these sermons where you were sort of made to grovel and, and look at your life and realize how bad you were and to sort of look in, you're supposed to look in every nook and cranny for sin in your life and to get that sin out. So you were ready for Passover. Now you'd already done all the steps. Basically, I guess you were supposed to be deleavened at that time and be ready to go. Of course, if you were really deleavened, you wouldn't need the Passover. You wouldn't need Christ. But so many times that focus was on that and the fact that, that now for seven days, you know, your goal was to keep leaven out of your life. And we spent a lot of sermons on leavening, not much on unleavened bread. Not much was spent about really Christ. Not much was spent about that you are unleavened. Well, you're not unleavened, you know, you must be all vain and everything. You just, you're still a sinner. But yet the scripture, and if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see an important statement. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 it talks about Christ as our Passover. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. And the thing is, is, is Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, so we need to keep the feast not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And in fact, when Israel kept the Passover, they were unleavened. They had put the leavening out. The leaven was gone. And when they kept the Passover, they were to be dressed and ready to go. And at a moment's notice, they left. And, uh, you know, they were to keep their staff in their hand and so forth and ready to go. And there are all kinds of analogies and teaching points. And so what we want to do uh, in the study this afternoon is to look over a few of the different teaching points of the Passover and to realize that it is eating and drinking. And, and just like when I had the meal with, these, uh, with this individual who knew all about these Hollywood people, you learn a lot, in the, and she sort of represented them, if you will. And the same thing, when, when we're out in the world, we represent God. And we've had intimate relations with God. We've had the meal and so forth. This is why God is so very um, uh, strict about saying, be careful what you do because you represent me. 
And so now that we've eaten and broken bread with God, and we've gone through this seven days of putting unleavened bread in our life, not just worrying about the leavening, but actually putting Christ in for the seven days, now it's time to go on out. And when we eat with other people, we are representing God. We are bringing news from afar of this king. We're able to say, well, I know, instead of Sylvester Stallone or Henry Fonda or Catherine Hepburn, I know God. And to be able to represent and to be able to say, God has done a lot for me. This is part of the Passover message where Israel said, you know, God purchased us. We were in slavery. God brought us out. We owe what we are to God. The reason we're a great nation is because of God. So these are part of the things that God is, has, brings forth in the Passover. And one of the first things that we learn in the Passover is that we are eating with God. Now, there's a lot about that. Uh, the first Passover there with, uh, with Israel, you don't really see God around too much, except for later on we find out that he's the lamb and, and many other things. But look at Exodus 24. God wants to eat with us because it, it symbolizes this close relationship. Like we talked last week, you don't just invite anybody to your home, into your, into your dining room and eat. But one of the teaching points that God shows us, and it's very important for young people who are learning about God and, and so forth, that God wants to share with you, break bread with you, bring, have you come up to the house and actually eat with him. And so it's like this, later we'll hear about this big banquet that is put together, and these invitations are sent out, and it depends on you whether or not you come. And you're very fortunate in that you were on the mailing list because of your parents. But you still have a responsibility whether you actually come or not. You can decide not to go, or you can decide to go. Well, here, after God had uh, purchased Israel, made it even possible for them to come out, uh, he brings them, he, he lays out some uh, instructions for them, and then the, uh, you find that the people agreed to everything he said. It's a, it's a marriage. You know, he lays forth the covenant, the people talked about it, and they said, you know, everything God says, we will do. And right after them saying, I do, guess what happened? Here was a, a meal. Verse uh, 7, chapter 24, uh, Moses took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people. I'm reading out of the uh, New King James Version today. And uh, they said, all the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient, much like you say, do you promise to obey and so forth? And they said, yes. And then verse 9, Moses went up and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, they saw the God of Israel. And then it describes, you know, his, what they saw and what was around him. Verse 11, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, he didn't lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and they drank, much like what we see later on of people who God calls, they're called the disciples, the students, but not yet the apostles. Can't be sent until you've passed, you know, kind of through. You know, first you're a student, you can't be a teacher. You're not called to be teachers, you're called to be students. Then you become teachers. So he calls disciples and he disciplines them via teaching and so forth. And then as they respond, some didn't. Many were called, but remember when he talked about the bread and he said, well, you have to really eat my flesh. 
and drink my blood. And some of them left. They said, that's it. They dropped out of school and they didn't become the teachers. They were students to a point and then after a while they dropped out. But those that became students, those that followed him, then later you find them at a, at a meal. You find them taking the Passover. You find them with, with God and actually uh, partaking of a meal with him and seeing him and, and lying on his breast. But then what happened right after that? Well, right after that, he went away, didn't he? Just like Moses, verse, uh, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, now come on up here to this mountain. And so Moses rose up and left just like Christ was resurrected and went off to a far place. And so now we learn through the Passover that many are called, few are chosen, but the only ones that make it, that inherit this kingdom, are the faithful. So, so far, so, so good. Called, chosen, now are we going to be faithful? We've had dinner with you, you've gotten the words, the bread of life, you've had the blood of the sacrificial lamb, so now Moses leaves. He gave them specific instructions and now they're on their own, much like when Christ left and left all of us on our own. Now, are we going to be faithful? Now, you know the story, but let's go to Matthew chapter 24 and find some instructions there. The Passover probably has more meaning, more symbolism than any other holy day or any other feast day in the Bible. And it is a feast and a holy day. And it's, there's a reason that it's eight days long as well. Matthew chapter 24. I'm in a new Bible, so sometimes I get a little bit lost. Verse 42. Now remember, think back about the Passover. When they... When they took the Passover and the unleavened bread. They were already supposed to have their bread ready. You know, the unleavened bread, they're supposed to have it already in a, in, in a satchel that they take it with them. They have that, you know, get that ready to go. They were already dressed. And then the Passover took place. They had the meal. They were going to go a long ways on the meal, on what they ate. And the bread that they ate, you know what? They ate leftovers. They ate, not the lamb, because you burned that, but you took the bread from that meal. See, what didn't rise and, and, and so forth, you didn't even have yeast in it. You took what was in that house with you. And the same thing, the teachings that Christ gave them were to last them for that seven, that seven time periods or the seven days or, or whatever, the same thing. The words that Christ left us are supposed to carry us through. That's the bread that came from heaven. So if you, he said, you know, strive for the meat that doesn't spoil, you know, the, you know, go for that. So here we have these individuals in a house, they've killed the lamb, they're waiting. It's at night. They don't know for sure what's going to happen except that at midnight a death angel is going to pass over. But after that it says just be ready. And so they're supposed to be dressed, ready to go. So they don't know when the master is going to call and say it is time to leave. It would take some faith, wouldn't it, to stay dressed, be ready to go, not maybe get undressed and go to bed, but to actually be ready to go. And you find in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, Watch therefore, you don't know what hour your Lord is coming. And that's part of the lesson of Passover. You don't know for sure when this is going to take place. But know this, if the master of the house had known when the thief would come, he'd be watching. So he uses a little analogy here. 
Therefore, you be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you don't expect him. Who is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? You know what that says about you and me? It says that we have been left here, just like when Moses went up the mountain, certain individuals were left in charge to feed the flock. They were to feed Israel. They were given specific instructions. Are they going to be faithful when Moses comes back down the mountain? Or are they going to do it their own way? Well, when Christ went off to heaven, he left, he left us in charge. He gave us a responsibility to go out and feed the world. Our job now is to feed the flock, to feed the servants. Feed God is done. Do it sending out magazines if that's right, if the time's right. Doing telecast if the time is right. Doing personal evangelism. Just being nice to someone and, and saying, you know, well, God was good to me. Somebody helped me one time. Or, you know, tithing. I believe in tithing and God has blessed me and therefore I can help you. Whatever, looking for an opportunity to share, much like at a meal, to be able to share a, about this king that you had an intimate meal with the other night. To be able to be called to a meal with God and sit down and eat with them and really get to know him and then be able to go out and say, look, one day this king is coming back and when he does, this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. So he says that we have been uh, in charge to, to feed the household. Verse 46, blessed is that servant when his master comes will find so doing. Assuredly, I say you that he will make him ruler, not, not over just feeding, but over all his goods. But if the evil master says, or sorry, the evil servant says, my master's delaying his coming, begins to beat the servants, eat and drink with the drunkards, See, like they did with the golden calf. The master of the servant uh, will come on a day when he's not looking for him and an hour he is not aware of and he will cut him loose. You know, he gets fired. He loses out on his position. What all of that exactly means, I don't know. But I do know this, that there will be individuals who were in charge of feeding others that when Christ comes back, they have stopped doing what they're supposed to be doing. And their, their goal is to feed themselves and beat up on the other servants. It's rather sad. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. I even heard in a church that I used to belong to that they had the last day of unleavened bread yesterday so that people wouldn't miss school and work. Now you think about that, that's, that's amazing. So here you are in the middle of the night and part of the teaching point that, that God is giving is that we're eating and drinking with him, then he goes away and gives us some responsibilities. Let's look back at Joshua chapter 5. Here's a, an incident where you see God appear a little bit more than he did before. Joshua 5. The children of Israel had not been circumcising their sons, and the ones that had rejected God had died off, and so now it was time to move on in to the promised land. Now, when do you think God would choose to do that? You might think, well, why wouldn't he do that during Feast of Trumpets? You know, that's when... Because every single one of these holy days, somewhere along the line, has Passover in it. Because Passover takes care of all of it as well. The Passover is also the marriage supper in the whole 7,000-year plan. It's the Passover in the 1,000-year millennium. I mean, there are all of these things in Passover. And if you look, you'll find Passover in every one of the holy days. Every one of them. Why do you think that the Days of Unleavened Bread, there's a holy day at the end? 
the seventh day? That's really the eighth day because Passover is the first day. And then the first, then you've got the days of unleavened bread and you've got seven days, which pictures that 7,000 or the, uh, the millennium, that 1,000 year period with a holy day at the end. And it's all started off by Christ's return, you know, a marriage. And, and so we find here as Israel enters into the promised land, it's going to be just like when Christ returns, takes his bride, and then marches in and, and takes, takes over the earth. So Joshua 5, we find that uh, uh, they went through the circumcision. And this is a different circumcision here. Remember, uh, uh, they were to circumcise themselves before. This time, Joshua does it. Now, I don't mean that Joshua physically did each one, but his name is there that he did it because it's Christ, basically, that circumcises us. See, God the Father, Christ together, you know, it's a circumcision of the heart, which you, you can't do and neither can your father do. But in this case, uh, you find a little more information, and of course, it's interesting that Joshua's name is Joshua, which means Christ in the Greek. So verse 7, Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised. And then when they were finished, they stayed there a while. Verse 9, the Lord said to Joshua, this day I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt. And so uh, now they even named that a national memorial, Gilgal, which means rolling. So everyone there now was circumcised. Everyone's reproach was moved away. So because of that, now chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 10, the children of Israel camped in the rolling away, Gilgal, and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day, and the manna stopped. So now you'll find that Christ is actually there. You'll find Joshua running into a being here in just a minute or two as he soared out, and he is ready to lead them in. And so slowly you're seeing Joshua kind of blend in with, with this one who will be Jesus Christ. Remember, Moses was sort of to blend into Joshua. Joshua is to blend into this being. When Christ returns, the same thing. Christ will meet us because we've taken the Passover. You know, the manna will stop. You know, Christ is here. The bread is here. You know, I have to go someplace for it. He said that Christ is here. And so then we go in and we conquer the land. And how long does it take place? They march around the city seven days, and on the seventh day it falls. Again, it's a conquering, it's a going in. But all of these lessons are tied in with the Passover, and you can move the Passover all the way to the end time and realize that when Christ returns, you know, you've got these seven, all these sevens and so forth, and we will go in and conquer the land. Um, verse 13, they came to pass, Joshua was there by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes. Behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. He said, are you for us or our adversaries? He said, no, but a commander of the army of the eternal I've now come. And Joshua worshipped him, fell on his face. Notice this being didn't pick him up and say, hey, I'm just a servant like you, like angels do in Revelation, because he was God. Say so he was Melchizedek. And uh, he says, uh, what does my Lord say to his servant? Verse 15, the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your shoes because where you're standing, it's holy. And then they go in and they conquer the land. And again, the analogies there are, are tremendous. Now we go back to Revelation chapter 19, and lo and behold, we find more information about eating, this Passover.
Chapter 19, verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice. And give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. It doesn't use the marriage of the lion of Judah. It doesn't use the marriage of the word. It doesn't use the marriage of Joshua or Jesus. It uses the word lamb for a very special reason. Because again, the Passover is key to all of this. It sets everything up and the Passover is in every single holy day. The lamb has, made, uh, has come and his wife has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to be arraigned in fine linen, clean and white and bright. Again, we find the clothes situation entering in. And then verse 9, right? Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, later on, we'll find that many are called, but few are chosen. Some, in fact, turn that invitation down. And so then we find verse 11, heaven open and a white horse and he that sat on him was faithful true and in righteousness he judges and makes war so he's here's this one that joshua saw here he is with a sword here he is on a on a prancing white stallion with his crown ready to go he has his bride there's been a marriage take place you know he made it possible because he is the lamb and now they're about to take over the entire world and you find that your seven thousand years you know, begin uh, is about over. You've got 6,000 years ends. You've got that 7,000 year period, which is pictured by, we know, seven days of the, of the feast, seven days of unleavened bread, counting the Passover as, as, as it's right there. And then you have the last day, the last great day. And you find him um, uh, bringing these people in and basically taking over the promised land, getting the inheritance that was promised and doing uh, all of this. Now, what does all this mean to us? Let's look at Luke chapter 22, uh, eating and drinking with God. You know, it's, some of you no doubt thought when I first started in with, uh, with my other dinner meal that, well, I, that would have been nice to eat with someone like that and kind of talk with them and get to know them and, and ask them questions. And at the same time, we had a tremendous privilege in having the Passover and being able to eat and drink with God. That's why it's... It's a joyous time, but it's also a time for reflection because even though God is actually, you know, he's here in spirit, but we have to realize that though we are all together when we have that meal, it is with God that we are eating and drinking. That is really what is taking place. So we don't want to get so carried away in something else that we forget why we're really there. And same thing with washing feet and other, other things. But Matthew chapter 22, think about this. Verse uh, 1, Jesus answered and he said in a parable, The kingdom of God is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And we've got to look at this in a personal way, that, that God of the universe has looked down and he picked you. And if you were unbaptized, he picked you and he has allowed you to come along with your parents. But then, see, because 1 Corinthians 7 says you're holy but you can make yourself unholy. Just like if you were born in Israel and your parents circumcised you and kind of brought you along and taught you the laws, and then one day you broke the laws, then you are unholy, you know, and you can't take part in the Passover. You can't go the next step. So your parents' calling gets you in like we drew out the, the altar and the tabernacle, and so we sort of gets you to the altar but as far as you washing in the basin and moving on in where the table of the Lord is, moving on into the Holy of Holies, that's your calling. 
but at least you've been you've been invited to the great banquet and one of the encouraging things about the parable of the prodigal son is that even if a person rejects that banquet they go off like the prodigal son did they say you know hey this is this is fine but i'm out of here give me my inheritance i'm going my own way the thing is 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 after the world beats them up and they come back god will run and meet them god will wash them god will put a ring on their finger put a put uh, the, the cloak around them and bring them in. It's not that they have to do penance for so many years or whatever. That's one of the encouraging parts of Luke 19 and the, and the prodigal son. I guess it's Luke 19. But anyway, uh, he arranged the marriage, which would be for us, and he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, but they were not willing to come. Now, there was a whole nation that was really that way, and not all of them, because the scripture does say that some of Israel was saved. Some of the apostles all came from Israel. But some of them said, we're not, we're not going to come. And there are people that, uh, that many are called, but they don't respond. Then we've got, uh, he says, well, tell those that are invited, uh, I've, I've got my dinner ready. Uh, my oxen, my fatted cattle, they're killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. Now, there's a lot of ways you can make light of it. These are the very same people, don't forget, who, you know, were meticulous about, you know, in their tithing. They were meticulous. They would strain out a gnat. You know, they were meticulous on how far they could walk on the Sabbath. So there, how did they make light of it? Well, there are other ways you make light of God's calling. And one went to his own farm and another to his business and the rest then seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. Of course, they treated the prophets that way. The king heard of it. He was furious, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murdered and burned up their city. Now, he did that more than once, didn't he? You know, Jerusalem went down uh, during Babylon. It went down right after Christ in 70 A.D. And so, you know, there are even future um, uh, indications there as well of modern Israel. But for us, you know, many of us, were the opportunity came to us when the first ones turned it down. And especially if you're a Gentile, that's why one of the scriptures in, in Romans says that salvation came to the Gentiles because Israel rejected it. But are they rejected that they'll all be lost? No, they'll have their opportunity later, but now the door is open. In other words, the wedding supper was put out. They said, we're not coming. God says, fine, we're gonna just put it out and see who else responds. And then when we have them in and they marry Christ, and the kingdom of God begins, then we go back out and save Israel like we were going to from the beginning. And the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So verse 8, he said to the servants, Hey, the wedding's ready, but those that were invited were not worthy. So go into the highways and find just as many as you can find and invite them to the wedding. So the servants went to the highways, and they gathered everything they could find, both bad and good. Now there's a couple of analogies there. You will also find the kingdom of God is like a fisherman went and fished, and when he got it out, he separated bad and good and so forth. But in this, in this wedding, it doesn't matter if you're bad or good. You're saying, why? You know, how do you get to this wedding? What are the qualifications? Being good? He said, no, he brought bad and good, and the wedding was filled with guests, but how do you get to stay there? We're going to find a little more information. Verse 11, the king came in to see the guests, and he saw a man that didn't have on a wedding garment. He didn't see the bad. He didn't go through and say, well, you're bad, and you're bad, and you're bad, and you're bad. 
He went through and you didn't have a wedding garment. So it's the wedding garment that allows you to actually stay. And where does that come? Where does one buy a wedding garment like this? Is this something, is this keeping commandments? Uh, is this being circumcised? What is this? How do you get this wedding garment? Verse 12, he said, friend, how'd you come in here without a wedding garment? In other words, you should have known. And he was speechless, and of course, he was, he was thrown out. So as we look at the Passover, I think it's very important instead of running around looking at ourselves saying, oh, I've got to get ready for the Passover. I'm not worthy to take the Passover. Of course you're not worthy to take the Passover. That's the whole purpose of the Passover. Get ready for the Passover so we don't need the Passover is ludicrous. Or to get out all the leavening so we can be pompous throughout the seven days and then God slaps us because we find a sandwich hid underneath the, the chair somewhere. That's not right either. The whole purpose is really is focused on Christ. Because it is the lamb that got him out of Israel. Not actually even that. It's the lamb that saved the firstborn. And the analogy there later on goes to the whole world. You know, the first Passover just saved the firstborn. Didn't save everybody else. You know, if you were outside and you weren't the firstborn, you know, that was okay. It was the firstborn that was going to die. And with Israel coming out and so forth, they are the firstborn. We are the firstborn. But then part of our job is to let people know that the Passover and all of this applies to everybody, that eventually everyone will have to take the Passover, not just the firstborn. Everyone will need Christ, not just the firstborn, not just the church. So he goes through and, and explains here that, and, and for us it's very uh, important that we don't shun our calling, that if we have been called, we have answered it, we have accepted his sacrifice, we then go inside, we have the bread and the wine, and we have that relationship. Then we're supposed to be faithful with feeding with the bread that we've been given so that when he comes back, he says, now you get graduated, not just are you feeding everyone, you now inherit all things. And then if we are unbaptized, we need to realize that it's a great privilege for God to even to be invited to God's house, for God to say, come on in and have a supper with us. Not, not the special supper, but a very special supper. And then at the appropriate time, you're ready to be washed. You're ready to be you know, anointed. You're ready to come on into the inner chamber and partake of my table. And then you're ready to enter into that relationship for all eternity. So uh, that's part of it as well. So Christ returns. We have a marriage supper. We enter into the promised land and rule. So... Uh, now, another part of this is over in John 13, because the Passover has a lot of other messages as well. When you concentrate on putting out sin, you, in my opinion, you minimize the sacrifice of Christ. You begin to have the pull them up by your own bootstraps mentality. You show me my sin and I'll get rid of it. Well, the reason I haven't gotten rid of it is because I haven't seen it yet. Or the reason I'm the way I am is because, you know, until God called me. Once God called me and he showed me my sin, then I got rid of it, then I was okay. And unlike my neighbor who keeps Christmas. See, it was real easy to kind of fall into that mentality. And then we began to zero in on the stuff we could really measure. You know, the white sugar mentality the exactly when the Sabbath started, exactly how long your hair, whether you should wear earrings or whether your tie should have the little, the little uh, what they call those things, it's supposed to look like sperm cell, you, wouldn't, you couldn't wear them about 20 years ago. 
Uh, yeah, Paisley ties, because of course that would be sin. So you have to measure those kinds of things. So what happens, that's the, the result of minimizing the lamb and minimizing the days of unleavened bread. And so it became the days of getting sin out of your life and, and looking for leavening in your life and going to the restaurant while you're talking about your neighbor looking for any kind of croutons on your salad. Now, you're supposed to put the leavening out, but again, what, what, what is there? The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The fact that you have already been unleavened. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, that deleavened you. It didn't get you started. It didn't get you started down the way to where, oh, well, I, okay, now I'm in the race. God, you paid my entry fee. Now it's up to me to stay without any sin. Oh, I don't know. Anybody here been without sin since you've been baptized? I don't think so. That's kind of a, if anything, you become more sinful in that you begin to look deeper and then you begin to see it. And more and more you come to the point, you say, man, I'm just so glad that God is not going to hold these sins against me. That God is just going to rescue me. He's going to put Satan away. He's just going to give me so much of his spirit that I will never, ever even think of sin again. And the Bible says that the past things won't even come to your mind. You know, I'd like to have the self-control to where if somebody's really done me dirty and I'm trying to forgive them, to be able to just say, Steve, don't ever think of it again, and poof, never think of it again. Wouldn't that be nice? How'd you like to have that control as God, just to say, that's it, I will never think about this again. I will put it aside. You know, that's, that's powerful. So the Passover is a lot more about God's love, his forgiveness, the fact that a being that could live on a planet zillions miles away, you know, knows every detail about DNA and little bitty micro whatevers and, and yet still knows about the universe on the other side. Somebody like that could say, why don't you come up to my house and have dinner with me? You know, come on in. Oh, by the way, here, just sit right here next to me. And I've killed the fatted calf. I've gotten all of my very best. I want you to be my friend. I, I in fact, is I'm here, you know, with you. And as you, you go through that, you realize that you were in a concentration camp. You were sold there, and then by your own sins, you had to stay there, and then he went and got you out. And to get you out, he had to take your place in the, in the line. He stepped up and he said, let this guy go, and then he went to the gas chamber for you. And, and the thing is, is this, is this person, this being, is saying to you, come on up to my house and eat. In fact, is I'll give you eternal life. We can do all kinds of fun stuff for all eternity. You think you can do fun things as a human being? What about if you're God? And you come on up here and be with me. And so this is, is the Passover. And as you begin to look, you say, well, the Passover lamb died to get us out, to be able to enable us to get us out. And he died for the firstborn. What was the firstborn supposed to do? He was supposed to teach. It was his responsibility. And that's one of the reasons, quite frankly, they were in Egypt. If you go back through history, when the teaching stops, who is the most at fault? The leaders. So the firstborn dies. See, and as you come on out, you soon learn that the Passover, though, everybody has sinned, not just the firstborn. It's not just their fault they're in Egypt. Pretty soon you look and you say, because it's, maybe it's our fault. We look around and say, well, it's our fault, or I mean our leader's fault, that some of the things are wrong in this nation. And you could blame them. Blame the politicians. We need a Passover for the politicians. In fact, just forget the Passover. Just let the death angel come through. <laughs> just kidding. But you need to pass over for, for them. But then the more you look at it, you know, we say, well, this country, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's wrong in this country. And blame the politicians. Blame the judges. 
And you know, brethren, that, that's right. But then what happens, the next deeper move is pretty soon you say, you know what, but I'm not exactly the best citizen in the world either. And so this is part of the message of the Passover lamb, that it is by not your might that the bonds were broken. And some of it wasn't your fault, part of the lesson of Passover. It wasn't their fault they were in prison for 400 years. Man, it'd be like you've been in jail, you're you know, sold since the 1500s. So some of that's not your fault. So the Passover dies, let's, let's you go. Now you say, okay, we don't have to pay for their sins anymore. Well, what do you do? You get out there and complain about no bread, you know, no quails, no this, no that, no the other thing. And so soon you learn that, wait a minute, I too have sinned. So the Passover gets to a deeper meaning. So the uh, foot washing, though, is the next level in that it's not just that God invites us to his place for a meal, but because, uh, you know, some kings could invite you for a big meal and, and give you that. But there's another level to God's love. And John 13 explains that. Here Christ has eaten this meal with them. And when the supper was over, they, they were eating and so forth. Notice in verse uh, 3, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, and he was come from God and going to God, he rose from supper, and he laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. So what we're going to find here, and we'll go back and forth a little bit, but he becomes the servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. And through this, and through the Passover season, we realize that throughout the entire millennium, throughout history, Christ has been the servant. Not only does he give us the Passover lamb, he, in fact, is the Passover lamb. So he lays aside his garments, which is a type and shows us that, that the word, who is God, becomes flesh. So here we've got him at the head of the table, getting up, laying aside those garments and putting on the on flesh so we find in uh, verse 4 he rose from supper laid aside his garments took a towel and girded himself and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded so imagine here we are part of the passover is this great king has sent out an invitation he sent it out through servants he sent it out through the prophets and the law and one day you're reading them and, and it clicked he sent it out through Herbert Armstrong. One day you're driving down the road and you hear him on the radio. Heard it, one day he sent it out through your brother-in-law who talked to you about it one day or whomever. He sent this invitation out. Now, when you, when you show up at the door and you're kind of intimidated because all the bigwigs who have all the wealth, like God does, you know, anybody who, who has that kind of wealth, who is a king, well, he's going to be pompous and, and they'll play the music and he'll come in and, and everybody will have to bow down. And guess what? You show up at the door and here he is. He ushers you in. He takes off his garment and he, he puts his towel around. He gets down and starts washing between your toes. You go, what is happening here? The world has never seen, you'll never see anything in the Bible that ever shows Lucifer or Satan ever having that attitude. He would never get down and wash anybody's feet. You are there to serve him and serve him only. So here, you walk in and here this guy is. He's there and he says, here, let me wash your feet. And he starts washing your feet and taking care of you. You go, wow. And then he takes and seats you. And the meal that he has gotten 
Think about if somebody killed the fatted calf, the best one. You save it all year long. You pick it out, you fatten it up, you kind of protect it, and then you give that. Or if you took every last dime, and this is always touching when you go overseas, many of our brethren overseas will take just about everything they have to fix a feast for you because they know you're Americans, you're used to having so much, and for them it might take a, a whole uh, uh, month's salary to, to feed you. When we were in Mexico here just a few weeks ago in Cancun, uh, a cab driver, the average cab driver, works 12 hours a day and makes between 8 and $10 a day. That's, that's what he gets. A guy handling a shovel makes about uh, $4 a day. A secretary, because she's more skilled, makes about 5 a day. Uh, somebody driving a big truck, you know, with a lot of skill, maybe an 18-wheeler or driving a big cat, working on the highways, he'll make maybe 10 to $12 a day. Now, imagine you going to their place and then putting on a meal, say $50 meal or something. You know, $50 meal, that's, you know, you and your girlfriend or you and your wife go out, you can spend $50 in a, in a, in a heartbeat at a nice restaurant. So, you know, here you find out that he has sold everything he has to feed you. Because isn't that what he did? If, if the bread that is on the table is Christ, the bread from heaven, if the lamb is the lamb of God, if he gave his life, he gave it, you know, if you die, you, it doesn't matter what you have, right? I mean, if you have a million dollars and you say, well, he gave it all, he gave a million dollars, that's true, but you still have life. But if you gave your life, you, you've lost everything. So you find out that this person, this being, when he's invited you to dinner, not only does he have the attitude that he'll wash your feet, but you find out that, that he's sold everything, he's everything to feed you. Everything to take care of you. That's kind of humbling. You don't show up saying, you know, I'm, I'm finally ready. You know, um, you called me for the Passover and I've been just digging between my toenails ever since and I've gotten all the sin out. I'm, I'm worthy to be here to eat with you now. Oh, don't think so. You, you show up with this humble attitude. It's like, I, I can't believe you're doing this. You know, please get up. Don't wash my feet. He said, no, I'm showing you. He says, I am here to serve. This is the whole purpose of Passover. Now, that's a big message to get across to the world because the world doesn't think that. They think God is off in some throne waiting to, you know, you be drugged before him, kicking and screaming about to receive this eternal damnation to burn forever in hell because you went dancing one night. You know, it, it, we have a big gospel, you know, to be able to spread, to be able to say the good news is not that here is, your, here is God's law, now you go figure out how to be righteous. Here is God's law, now you go home and you figure all the stuff you've been doing wrong and now straighten up and fly right. The good news is that Jesus Christ has died for your sins, that you're going to be freed from bondage of Satan and that he will wash your feet, you'll come in and eat and sup with him, he'll fight your battles, and when he comes back, as long as we're faithful, he's not going to come on some little jackass you know, it was kind of humiliating. You know, I don't know if you've ever ridden a jackass, but it's hard to be very stately riding a donkey. You know, he wounds along like this, you know. Here Christ comes in, the king of kings riding a donkey. But you see, that was his first coming. I came as a servant. The next time, I guarantee you, I'd much rather be riding a big prince and white stallion, you know, just chomping at the bit and the feet going and just glossy and tail and mane flying, you know, and come in with the armor shining and everything like that. Now that commands respect. 
instead of, well, there's my king. There, the guy there on that little jackass there bouncing around, you know? Mm, totally different. See, the first time through, he comes as a servant. But then we look at him, and it's like, why should we fear Christ? Here is the one that invited us, purchased us, washed our feet, have an intimate relationship with him. You know, we are thrilled. The only reason we, sh we should fear him is if we're trying to wear our own wedding garments. So you're trying to get there without a wedding garment. Friends, where, where's your garment? Well, I, I uh, you know, hey, I kept the days of unleavened bread. That's not the whole purpose. The purpose is to look back and, and to see Christ. So we, we see this washing here. And um, uh, verse, uh, verse 12, he washed their feet. He took his garments. He sat down again. And he said, you know what I've done. You call me teacher and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. And if I'm your Lord and teacher and wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example to uh, do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Well, that makes sense. Nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Now, if you know these things, happier are you if you do them. And then, you know, later on he said, look, I'm, I'm going to get up and, and, and serve you and feed you and, and so forth and, um, and so on. So we find this, uh, uh, let's go back to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 and 53, actually it's interesting to read 52, 3, 4, 5, basically 6 and 7. It's, uh, it's really sort of a, a story flow. Uh, 52 is, it talks about, uh, well anyway you can read it, but you can see that Israel is brought out of captivity and the analogy there is us as well. And then it tells how that they are purchased without a price. You know, in, in chapter 52, verse 3, it says, You sold yourselves for nothing. You're going to be redeemed without money. Well, how, how are you redeemed? And we are the redeemed of the Lord. How, how are you bought without a price, without money? Well, it's by the blood of Christ. And it goes through and talks in uh, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news. So it explains that you've been sold, but don't worry, you're going to be bought. And then it says, those of you that know about this and go proclaim the good news, that's going to be really good. And then, verse 13, we learn how you're bought. Behold, my servant will deal prudently. He'll be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished, though, at you, because his visage was marred more than any man, and he's formed than, more than the sons of man. So you have a contradiction. You're saying, boy, he's really high. Everybody thinks he's wonderful. And then he's, he's so messed up that people don't even recognize him. So how do, you, how do you reconcile that? Well, we know now it's easy. You look back, you say, he was the word, and then he became beaten, and, and people spit at him and everything else, and then he died. Verse 15, he sprinkles many nations. Verse uh, 1, who was be believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he will grow up before him as a tender plant and a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness that when we see him or beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. So he becomes this, this servant. He's despised. He's hid about. Verse 4, he's bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we thought he was stricken by God. 
But verse 5 says, no, he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. So everything that happened to him happened to him for our sake, not because he did anything wrong. So this, again, is part of this Passover lesson, part of breaking up the bread and realizing the stripes. Uh, by his stripes we are healed. And verse 6 says, we're like a bunch of sheep that have all gone astray. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. As a sheep before his shearers is silent, he didn't open his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who would declare his generation? Well, he didn't have any children. Well, we're his children, is part of the analogy, that we're the generation to follow. We, we are the ones that, that carry his name. He didn't have a firstborn son to carry on the name Jesus of Nazareth or son of Jesus. In fact, that's one of the big arguments that Paul got into in the book of Acts, because one, one guy was saying he was Christ's son. He said his name was Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. And boy, Paul had no toleration for him at all. And right away, uh, I think he ended up being blind or something for a while. I mean, immediately. So Christ had no generation. There were no Bar-Jesus to carry on Jesus' name. We are the generation. We are the children whom God has given him. And <clears throat> verse 9, he has um, uh, made his grave with the wicked, but the rich at his death. And verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And he'll see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. In other words, our payment has been paid. It's been satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He'll bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the great, and he'll divide the spoil with the strong. Brethren, we, we get to divide that with him. It says, if you suffer with Christ, you will inherit all things with Christ. So part of this Passover meal then, this foot washing, is to realize this great king becomes a servant. He takes off this garment. The word becomes flesh, clothes himself with flesh. He lets the flesh be beat up, just like the old towel is dirty after drying 12 apostles' feet. You know, it's dirty, it's used up, and his body was used up. There wasn't much left. He'd been beaten up. In fact, his Psalm 22 says his bones were pulled out, nothing broke. Hands pierced. He could see, you know, maybe his ribs. Maybe they opened up flesh wounds in him when they beat him. I mean, his body was, you know, you, you dry 12 men's feet off with a towel. You're not going to put it out for a nice towel. Oh, somebody's called me. Thanks. God's calling. Um, somebody might want to get that back there, maybe find anywhere um, now chapter 53 verse 11 it says that uh, um, well we read that but basically after he bears the iniquities he he uh, receives this high position again now let's go to John 17 now, after John 13, we, we read about the uh, foot washing. John 13, we read about the foot washing. And then 14, 15, 16, he's, he's praying, he's telling them, he's teaching them things. And then chapter 17, we have this prayer, and we read in uh, uh, verse one, Jesus lifted up his, uh, his eyes and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Verse 5, now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. 
So the word had all of this glory. And, you know, what an incredible thing to just have it made, be God, and then say, okay, well, I'll go ahead and step aside from that. I'll go ahead and trust you, Father, to take care of me. I'll become a little baby, you know, down there where Satan can get to, you know, and, and trust you, the Father. And then grow up and, and be beaten around and, and be acquainted with grief, acquainted with sorrows, all to make dinner possible for you and me, to, to make it possible for us to have that relationship. So when we get together, that's one of the things that we're looking at. We're saying, wow, this is really terrific. He went through a lot of trouble. You know, you go to somebody's house and they say, hey, we're, we've really been through a lot of trouble. You know, here's some Kentucky Fried Chicken for you guys. And I got some plastic plates and stuff. Now, that's okay for, you know, hey, we're all tired. Come on over for a barbecue. But, you know, if somebody, you come over and they say, look, we had this cow and we, we, we kept this beef for a whole year, here's the special china I've been saving. I saved 10 years to buy this because we wanted to have you for dinner, this, this special china. And all we could do, we could just afford enough for your place setting, you know, maybe. And, and so there it is. And here's the special wine. It took, you know, two months for me to earn the money to buy that bottle. I mean, if someone to do that, you'd be stunned. And you'd say, I can't believe that you're doing this. God, look what God has done. Look at the marriage supper and what he did for us. So. It's not a time that we're going, well, you know, I just about got all the sins out and don't really need the Passover too much. Or this year, I've been really sinful, so I really appreciated the Passover. You know, it's, it's your unleavened. It's, it's something that God has already done for us, which is really uh, quite delightful. Um, so for us, as we look at the foot washing, we realize that we've been invited to, to eat with God. Uh, he sent for us. You might say he sent his limo. He sent people to look for us, watch over us. Hebrews said that the angels are servants over us to watch over us to make sure everything goes well. Let's look at Leviticus 14. Finish up here in a minute. We, uh, so you're called, Leviticus 14, into his presence. So we, we read about the uh, marriage supper sends the word out and says, come on over. So we're called. And that's nice. We, we, uh, we saw last week on the drawing where you, you get to approach the gates. And when you approach the gates, there's the altar right there. And you can see the, the food that's being offered up on the altar. You can see where they're cooking God's meals. And uh, you can actually bring sacrifices and stand there and watch and prepare it for God. You know, I brought this for God. You bring it. They cooked it up on the altar and took care of it. Then they would take certain things behind into the sanctuary, and you weren't allowed to go in there. So you make it that far, and part of what the physical Passover did was to get them to the door. And part of what you do when God begins to call you is you kind of get to the door there. But then when you got past that burnt offering, that altar, there was a bowl, there was a laver, there was a place where they washed up. And the washings took place before you went on into the, uh, into the inner sanctuary. And so if you're called and you get into his presence and you bring the appropriate offerings, you accept the Passover, you accept Christ as your savior, the next step is you move on through and you go through, uh, well, what did Israel do? They accepted the Passover, then they went through water, didn't they? They went through water. They had a cleansing to go on in. What was the name of that water? The, the green sea, the blue sea, 
the Red Sea. Why was it red? Why, why did God work it out to where the sea that they went through was the Red Sea? Well, because we know now, looking back, you're washed in the blood of Christ. And, and look at this symbolism here that took place in, in uh, Leviticus chapter 14. <clears throat> uh, the law of cleansing the leper it makes you understand why so many lepers were cleansed during Christ's day because one of the things you should have done is gone back and, and had this explained to you. If you were a leper, and you, you know, one of the things that you would do is say to the priest, well, you know, I was clean. What, what are the rules? What do I do now? Or, or I've tried this. I've been to you to be healed, you know, and, and maybe I wasn't healed, but then Christ comes and heals you. Anyway about it, the leprosy and what is here should be tied together. And so Leviticus 14, this shall be the law, verse 2, of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He'll be brought to the priest. The priest will go out of the camp. And indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest will command him to take two living and clean birds, two of them, just like atonement. You had two, two different lambs. One dies, one lives, two of them. Now you take cedar wood. I believe that Christ was crucified on cedar for this reason right here. You take cedar wood. Then you take scarlet. Why would you take scarlet? Part of scarlet goes back with Judah and the tribe of Judah and the scarlet thread and this is showing who the Messiah, who the real bird is gonna be. This isn't just about a bird bath here. This is a picture about baptism being put into blood, only in this case it was bloody water, baptized. This case you took clear water and becomes red and later we find that it's the blood of Christ that washes you clean. So you take two birds, you take some cedar wood, you take scarlet, and you take hyssop, which ties you back to the Passover, where you took the blood and you sprinkle it on the door and the wall and so forth. Now the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed. You kill it in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he will take it. Now, when you kill the bird, you know, birds don't bleed a lot, but they do bleed. And this water is going to have bird blood in it. Not very much, because a bird doesn't have much blood. I've killed a lot of dove and quail. If you wring one's neck, there's not a lot in it, but enough to take an earthen vessel and make it turn red. See, so now you're looking and all this water is red. And he says, I want you to take the cedar wood. And I want you to take the scarlet in verse 6. And I want you to take the hyssop. And I want you to dip them and the living bird in the blood of the water that was killed, or the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. So imagine this little bird is struggling along, scared, heart beating like crazy. You take it and you're trying to hold this, all this stuff in your hand and you dunk it in this water. Was it God drowning this bird? You dunk it in the water, then you sprinkle this seven times and it's, it's a cleansing. Then you let the bird go. And so the bird is, is let go by the death of the other bird. And you find that, that we are let go. We are redeemed. We are bought. We are saved. We are turned loose by the blood of Christ, by the cross or the stake, whatever you want to say. By, here's the wood, you know, by the, by the stake, by the tree. Because remember, whenever you uh, committed a capital crime, you were supposed to be nailed on a tree. 
That was part of the punishment. Not only did you kill them, you, you stoned the criminal or whatever the execution called for, then you took them out and you nailed them up on a tree till sundown so that people could see it. And it would just say, yeah, that's where that, you know, that I have no problem with that. Somebody go kill and rob and, and, and murder somebody, you nail them up and people go, oh my goodness, you know, look what happens to the criminal. And it's good for everybody. But then you took them down and then you went and buried them. And the thing was, is Christ was nailed to a tree. Now, whether that tree, you know, how that was done, whether it was a little tree out there, a literal tree out there, and they had a, a cross thing, and they, they did that, I don't know. It doesn't matter. I think it was probably cedar, but uh, that's neither here nor there. The scarlet ties it in, the hyssop, and he's nailed, he dies, and the living bird turns is turned loose. Revelation 7, verse 14 so that, see, that takes place during the Passover as well, when you realize that you and I are lepers. And leprosy had to be, uh, you know, it just didn't get better. It just ate, ate, and ate, and ate away at you till you died. And it spread to other people. But here was a way to be, you know, when you were healed, and when the lepers were healed, they should have gone to the priest. And the priest would have done all of this, and here's this powerful message. And for the Passover, think, when you have Passover, you are a leper that has been healed. You've been healed of all of, of, of your sins. You're clean, and, and your flesh is returned. Uh, Revelation 7, verse uh, 13, the elders said to me, uh, well, who are these in these white robes? Where'd they come from? Now, those of you who do laundry, you know that if you wash... Uh, a white robe and you throw a red sock in there, what color will that white robe be when you're done? <laughs> a friend of mine uh, was telling about the first time that he did laundry and he had, uh, he had some whites and so forth and he put in bleach and he thought if a little bleach would do good, uh, maybe a little more would do more and got his shorts out and they all looked like they'd been shot with a shotgun. <laughs> Verse 14, he said, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So this laver that you go by as you go by the uh, in front of the altar and then you go by headed toward the sanctuary where the table and the lamp with the seven, lamp, uh, seven lights are, as you go by, here you wash in this bloody water. You're washing in the blood of Christ. And you're, you're prepared, you're given garments, you're given a wedding dress. It's not your own garments, it's not your own, uh, you can't make them white. And so if we try to do that, we'll be at the marriage supper and, and God comes along and says, what are you doing here? You know, that, that garment, that's not the wedding garment. That didn't come from me. You, your own righteousness will not make it. So part of, uh, and I, quite frankly, I think for years we, we stressed our own righteousness during those days rather than the righteousness that is a gift from God. Malachi chapter 1. Um, so the young people then and new people, they, they need to be faithful in a little. Because if you're unfaithful along the way, the invite stops. And of course, then life kicks you around and you have a tendency to come back. You can repent is what the lesson of the prodigal son is. But you have to, to respect it along the way. And this is part of where God's laws and so forth come in. 
The priests, many of them, not all, because Acts says that many priests were converted, but some priests despised the altar of God, despised the table of God. And as a result, when they despised the table of God, then the scripture said that they would be snagged by their own table, meaning that the very table, the Passover, the lamb, all of this that was to save them actually became a snare to them. It says, let their table be a snare. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So when Christ came, they ended up actually stumbling at the food. They stumbled at the lamb. They said, you have to eat my flesh, drink my blood. They stumbled at that. When he began to, to teach them certain things, they stumbled at that. They said, well, who are you? So they stumbled over and the table that actually was set by God, provided for them by God, actually became a snare to them. And it started back in Malachi's day. Um, Malachi verse, I'll read in the New International, chapter 1. Um, verse 6, the son honors his father, a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect? It is you, O priest, who despise my name. And they said, well, boy, how do we do that? Verse 7, you place defiled food on my altar or on my table. And they said, well, how have we defiled you? God answers, well, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Now, how would we do that? Verse 8, well, you bring blind animals for a sacrifice. Isn't that wrong? Or you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals. Isn't that wrong? Try offering them to your governor. So the whole purpose of this at the start is to set such high standards that you realize not everybody can come to the temple. One guy reaches out to study the Ark of the Covenant and dies. Even the priests were told when you move the, the Ark, let certain ones go in and pack it and cover the ark and cover all the stuff before you let the next group in to carry it. Because if they go in ahead of time, they're going to die. End of story. You know, you say, well, he's sure being picky about that. Well, he is because it pictures God's throne. It pictures how hard it is to get into his kingdom. You cannot get into his kingdom. He has to invite you. He has to pave the way. He has to give you the wedding garment. He has to purchase you. And so all of these things are so symbolic. So when you have this table out there that pictures all of that and these bre this bread all lined up and, and everything, and then some priest comes in and says, ah, that's good enough today. You know, I want to break early. You know, let's just go ahead and, and, oh, I dropped that. That's fine. Just brush it off and set it up on the table anyway. And what it says is God is, there's really not a God. I mean, if he is, he's gone someplace. He's not paying attention. None of this matters. And so that bleeds on down to the rest of the people. And pretty soon, everything is treated with a dis disrespect. He, he makes a good point. He said, try offering that with your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? And he said, no, of course not. And chapter 2, um, he says in verse 8, he said, you, you've turned from the way, and by your teaching, you've caused many to stumble. And many later did stumble at the stumbling stone. They stumbled at Christ. Uh, you violated the covenant. So then the rest of the uh, chapter, chapter 3, he said, I'm going to send a messenger, and he's going to come to the temple, and he's going to purify Levites, and he's going to look for people that will really um, do it in the right way. Uh, middle of verse uh, 3, it says, Then the Lord will have men or people, uh, no, notice he didn't say Levites, will have those who will bring offerings in righteousness. 
and uh, verse 5, I'll come near to you to judgment. So he, he didn't judge the average person, but he definitely did judge uh, Levi. You know, when somebody is judged, something happens afterward. He didn't judge the people because nothing happened to the people. Chinese, nothing happened to Chinese. Nothing happened to the Japanese after Christ came. Nothing happened to the average Jew, really. What did stuff happen to? It happened to the Levites, the priests, the people that were in charge. He said, I came to judge you. And what did he say? I'm taking the kingdom from you and giving it to another nation. So the world really wasn't a whole lot different after Christ came immediately. I mean, he did certain things, and we know that the world will change a lot when he comes. But one of the things that he did judge, you know, people would come, he said, I'm not a judge. But he did judge the Levites, and he did take the responsibility away from them and gave it to you. Then, like Moses went off, and now when he comes back, he's going to call his servants and say, now what did you do with I left you? What did you do with what I left you? What did you do with what I left you? And those that are faithful, then he says, fine, you're not just feeding the world anymore. You are now inheriting all things. So the Passover is just through every single holy day. Chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord, not those that were circumcised, not those that were firstborn, not those that were Levites, those that feared the Lord, talked with each other. The Lord listened and heard, and a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine. Those are the exact words that God talked about in Numbers 3 when he said about the Levites. He said, the firstborn were mine. But see, what did they do? They were disqualified with the, the golden calf. So he said, the Levites, they will be mine. Why? Because they stood up and were counted. When Moses went off, when they came back, they were faithful. So now they have been unfaithful. So now he says to you and me, not Levites, not firstborn, not circumcised. Those that feared the Lord, which can be man, woman, or child. See, Jew, Gentile, free bond, all the same in Christ Jesus. So he said, they will be mine when I come back and I make up. So we will rule and reign. So now we're in charge of the temple. We're in charge of the word of God, the loaves of bread, the wine. You know, that's our, so when somebody comes to dinner, it's up to us to set the table. So if we handle the word of God deceitfully, then we're serving up spoiled meat. If we don't wipe down the table, if we don't do the things in the right way, if we don't treat it in an honorable way, it's no different than leaving a bunch of food crumbs and serving it on dirty dishes and just coming and going. We, it is our responsibility now to, uh, to, feed, to feed those. Verse 17, There will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day that I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them just in my compassion as a man spares his son that serves him. And you will see, again, the distinction between the righteous and the and the wicked. And finally in uh, 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 Matthew 25, we're taught to dress for dinner. We're taught to be ready. The Passover was to be eaten with staff in the hand, dressed, raring to go. And um, it's part of our responsibilities as well. Matthew 25, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five foolish, five wise. And uh, verse 5, the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And at midnight, a cry rang out, the bridegroom, come and meet him. So we're not sure just where we are in this stage. But we know that we have been called, and you only have, you know, like here, the virgins. You know, you, you've made it that far, the called, the chosen. But now we'll be faithful. 
you know, will we keep our garments, garments clean? In uh, Revelation 16, 15, the, uh, the final uh, uh, encouragement to us in Revelation 16, thinking about, you know, we're not sure when the Lord comes. We're not, we're not exactly sure, what, but we know that we're supposed to be feeding. We're supposed to be keeping our garments clean. We're supposed to be ready, you know, have our, our uh, lamps filled. It's those that are called faithful, uh, called, chosen, and faithful. In Revelation 16, verse 15, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake. Think of the Passover evening. And, and we've made it that far. You know, you're in the, you're in the building, and, and you've already killed the lamb. You've already done that. You put the, the blood up there. You've eaten things. You know, you've burnt the lamb, and, and you've gotten your bread ready, and you're, you're, you're dressed. You've made it that far. Look how far we have come. You've made it that far. You've had faith. But then it gets to be 12 o'clock. And then it's one o'clock, and then it's one thirty, then it's two o'clock, then it's three, then it's four. We're not really sure, but right now what he's saying is, look, you've made it this far. Don't give up. Don't go to sleep. Don't just say, ah, he's not going to come. Eating and drinking and, and going on about our whatever. And it seems like many have exactly done that. He said, blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. He's not talking about, you know, fleeing to the place of safety in your BVDs here. He's talking about in a spiritual sense that we have clothes been issued, wedding garment purchased by Christ, cleaned, pressed, ready to go. We don't get the spots and wrinkles out, brethren. Really, God does. We ask him to help, but he's the one that does it. And so through the days of unleavened bread, what we're ultimately looking for is in chapter 19, in verse 9, when it says, The angel said, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so Christ said in, in Luke 22, he said, You know, I, I really look forward to eating this one with you, but he said, I'm not going to drink any more wine until the kingdom of God, when, when it's fulfilled. When he comes back, and then, like the Passover, we may be hid out, we may be whatever. And the nation, of course, will be in captivity. Uh, however, that's going to work out. But the, the plagues of Revelation are just like, they're, they're so much uh, parallel with, with what happened with Moses in Egypt. And then all of a sudden, God arrives, and those that are looking for him and are keeping the Passover, and we are ready, you know, he brings them to himself, and he has that marriage. You know, he shows up, and, and we are changed, and we are like him, and then we are united with him, and we are his bride. And then... We move into the promised land, and the marriage supper has taken place, and when Christ returns, you know, it's not on the little donkey. He comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And those with him in Revelation 20, in verse 4, says, And I saw thrones on which they were seated, those that had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because their testimony for Jesus, because of the word of the God, and they hadn't worshipped the beast or his image and not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. In other words, they made it to the end, they hung in, whatever time period they were. And if you go through here, there basically there are three time periods. There's the first one, the testimony for Jesus. And there were a lot of people killed right around Christ's time because if they professed the name Jesus, they died. But then the false church took over, and after that, Jesus became a very popular name. But the false church would kill you for having the word of God. 
couldn't even have the Bible. How can you have a church that says they're Christian, and yet if you had the Bible, they killed you? And then, finally, at the end, there's another big persecution, those that have the mark of the beast. It won't be the name of Jesus. That won't be a problem. Jesus is a real popular name. It won't be the word of God. A lot of people have the Bible now. See, they, they can't keep the Bible out of people's hands now. The Internet, CompuServe, computers, printing. How are you going to do that? No, at the end, see, there's three stages. People died for the testimony of Jesus. People died for the word of God. And people are going to die for the mark of the beast. How, whatever exactly that all means, I don't know. The bottom line is, when Christ returns, it says that they came to life. They lived with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life till the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those that have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power on them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. And so what a time that the Passover season pictures. And I hope that um, through this year it was a meaningful time for you and one that you look forward to eating and drinking with God in the kingdom.